Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Sebrow, and welcome to the definitive rap, where we discuss the news items the mainstream media just won't touch. The definitive rap is proud to be the official podcast of vinnews.com. In 2005, I wrote a column warning that the days of steadfast Democrat support for Israel was waning. I saw it during the Democrat primaries when Howard Dean rose to the top of the pack following his referring to Hamas as soldiers, then his assurance to Jews that he would be a safe candidate because, quote, my wife is Jewish. I saw further evidence during the eight years of the Obama administration, the first J Street president who showed America the world, and other weak-kneed Democrats that openly criticizing Israel and creating daylight between the U.S. and Israel would not lead to any political consequences. I understood what Israel and the Jews were facing when I saw Jewish publications like Haaretz and The Forward, pundits like Peter Beinart, and activists like If Not Now, openly calling on America to punish Israel, while the ADL continued to serve as an arm of the Democrat Party. In 2018, we all saw it. When the Jewish left said they are just four voices and they ignored the real threat of the power of four openly anti-Semitic freshmen and how they would dictate our foreign policy. These four voices, together with their supporters in Gaza and Ramallah, blood libel Israel with terms like genocide, ethnic cleansing and genocide. These false terms are used intentionally to delegitimize Israel while inflaming the Arab streets against Israel and Jews worldwide. For the first time, Jews living in New York, home to the largest Jewish population in America, are being set upon by these hate-mongering mobs in large measure because we ignored all these warnings. Now in 2021, we are seeing the consequences of all these warnings that were dismissed and swept under the rug by those putting loyalty to a political ideology over the well-being of the one Jewish state. Today, we are honored to have an expert on all matters related to Israel, well-known professor and attorney Thane Rosenbaum, whom Bela will introduce shortly after her opening comments. Bela? Thank you, Thank you Alan. Yes, in re recent weeks, Jews have been under attack, assaulted while advocating peacefully for Israel in Times Square, harassed walking to synagogue in Brooklyn, beaten while dining in L.A., targeted in Seattle, South Florida, and across the United States and around the world. For more than two decades, anti-Semitism has been on the rise, first in Europe and other regions, and more recently here in the United States. Yet too many have been inclined to look away or only call out anti-Jewish hate when it aligns with their political agenda or fits a certain narrative. But anti-Semitism doesn't lend itself to sound bites and must be instrumentalized for partisan purposes. It is the world's oldest hatred and that it's been morphed and modernized, plaguing society in new and insidious ways. 
Indeed, the history of anti-Semitism shows that left unchecked, it threatens Jews and also non-Jews alike. While the sources of anti-Semitism may be varied, the reaction from the world should be simple, outrage and action. But the silence is deafening. We want to know where's the outrage. With us today, Thane Rosenbaum is a law professor and distinguished university professor at Turo College, where he directs the Forum on Life, Culture, and Society, and who writes widely on Jewish-related themes. He's a legal and Middle East analyst, novelist, essayist, and the author of numerous books of fiction and nonfiction, including Saving Free Speech from Itself and The Myth of Moral Justice, Why Our Legal System Fails to Do What's Right, and his recent columns appear in the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles and is written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, LA Times, and the Daily Beast, amongst other publications. He's the legal analyst for CBS News Radio and is a contributor to Newsmax TV. He hosts the talk show at the 92nd Street Y. Thane, welcome to our show. It is Thank an absolute honor. Thanks so much, Alan and Bela. I've heard so many great things about this show, and I've been listening to it, and I thought, when are they going to invite me? <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's incredible, and, and we, see, we feel incredibly, incredibly privileged to oh, thank be, you. be sitting with you here. Thane, um, how did we get from there to here? For years, major American media largely ignored or belittled facts provided annually by the FBI. Every year, way before, and even during the COVID-19 pandemic, two truths were confirmed over and over again. African Americans were the number one target of race-based hate crimes, and American Jews comprising less than 2% of the population were the number one target of religion-based hate crimes. In 2019, a year before the coronavirus pandemic, 62% of all hate crimes based on religion were against Jews. It is true that the mass murder of 11 Jews at prayer in Pittsburgh was heavily covered by the media, but if it didn't bleed, it didn't lead, and not much was made of desecrations of synagogues during Black Lives Matter-related unrest or arson attacks against Jewish houses of worship from Delaware to Oregon. And despite the continuing physical attacks against religious Jews in New York, anti-Semitism rarely made front-page news with significant exception of the New York Post. While the New York uh, Police Department tried mightily to make a difference, changing winds of woke kept anti-Semitism off the front burner of the media or the political elite they covered. So my question is, how did we get from there to here? Well, Bela, before I answer that, let me say I love the wordplay on uh, bleed and lead. Uh, that was that was that was uh, compelling. Um, look, I am often catastrophically wrong, uh, so let me start with that. I, I literally had said for decades two things that turned out to be not true, and they both sort of answer your question, which is that the hellhole that I've been in in university life for most of my professional career would stay on campus. The hatred of Israel and the hatred of Jews would be fashionable only among uh, arts and science faculty who can't publish, can't write, can't speak, can only do one thing, manipulate students. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, I don't deal with them. I don't talk to them. They all despise me. They can't publish books of any kind because they're really awful. And all they do is wake up in the morning, grind their teeth, 
and say, how do we harm Jews today? This is true on campuses all around the country, right? Just how do we libel Jews? I'm not saying Israel. I'm talking about Jews, right? Let's be clear. How do we libel them? How do we embarrass them? How do we, how do we show them our hate? So I just said, well, all right, look, I don't care. I, I have a life outside campus. I barely talk to someone, never invited to the faculty lounge. And by the way, it's one of the reasons, the main reason why when uh, Alan uh, 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 Kadish at uh, Toro College offered me this lovely position, Distinguished University Professor, which is a big deal, but I parachuted out of NYU because I wanted to be able to speak freely. And I wasn't able to do it. I wasn't allowed. I was, there were petitions every week for me to be fired. I reached an age where I was tired of it. They couldn't do it and wouldn't do it. But the students and the faculty, you know, it was, it was, people would chase me down and say, how many Palestinian children have you killed? And I would say, to the best of my knowledge, none or any children of any kind. But this is what my life was like. So I said, hell hole. Yeah. That's what life was like on a university campus, especially at NYU. Uh, NYU is at the top, I'm not there anymore, so I don't mind telling the truth, at the top level of Jew hatred, at the very highest, they should be very proud. If you're an NYU donor, you should give them more money because they're, they're at the very top level. So, um, so I thought it's confined to the campus. Well, that, that turned out to be wrong. The second thing is that I said was that uh, I'd been covering since the early 2000s violence against Jews in Europe, specifically in France. And I'd written about it for a number of places. No one seemed to pay much attention. Uh, remember, uh, President Obama infamously used the referred to the words, a, a, f- a bunch of folks were killed at a kosher Random market. Folks, folks yes. right? Let's just remember, it's not just UN Security Resolution 2334 uh, that he failed to veto, right? This nonsense that this is the best friend of his, he is no friend of Jews. And and let me just say one thing. Whenever you point to Jews that know him, they're not Jews. They're not. The Pritzkers aren't Jews. They're just not Jews. I mean, not Jews like what you mean, Jews. They were born Jewish technically, but they're embarrassed by it. I forgot that what's the guy who the CNN, his former senior advisor, um, Axelrod. He's not Jewish. I'm sorry. I don't want him credited as a Jew. He was senior advisor to Obama. He's, as far as I'm concerned, he's responsible. He's there. He was afraid to speak or he was pushing Rahm Emanuel. They're not Jews. They're not Jews. They're not Jews in any way that you would want them at your home for Shabbat dinner or any dinner. They're just not. So, so I just assumed uh, that what I was writing about in Europe would never happen in the United States. Violence in Europe, 75, 70 years after, and this was probably started around 65 years after the Holocaust. Now it's, I guess it's 76. But when I first started writing about this 20, no, about 15, 16 years ago. Uh, and let me say, it wasn't widely covered, as you point out. Forget here. What was happening in Europe was not widely covered. Uh, and I wrote about it and people, you know, <laughs> patronized me. Oh, that's thing. It's nice of you to keep the light on. Uh, but I never thought that the liberalism of what the United States meant meant that we would lose all, all bearings on what we believe to be a multi-ethnic liberal society. And that clearly uh, anti-Semitism in the United States would only be limited to what I would call cowardly anti-Semitism, anonymous anti-Semitism. 
uh, spray painting, you know, uh, 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 Nazi symbols on a shul, uh, desecrating a Jewish synagogue. Cowards, right? The, the difference is the cowards most of the time are the right wing, which has been exaggerated in this country as if they're the problem. They're not the problem. The problem was the hellhole that I lived through. Uh, and by the way, just to be clear, yes, I've written for all of those places, the New York Times a number of times, the Wall Street Journal, of course, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post. You'll notice I don't write for them anymore. It's not just because they, it, I don't want to. They have no interest in me. You know, so just to be clear, yes, that is part of my bio. And if you do a Google search, you'll see plenty of Thane Rosenbaum op-eds, but you won't see any recently because a line was drawn and what happened on campus that was widely accepted as progressive and important uh, somehow escaped. And it just moved into the public sphere. Uh, and people, I remember doing a lecture in Israel one year and I literally mockingly said, you know, this is about faculty members that are totally irrelevant. They have no power. Once students graduate, they won't walk away with any of these things. They'll have to make a living. This is just the stupid thing you believe when you're in college. I was, as I said, catastrophically wrong. I, I didn't understand how easily this could, as you would say, Bela, bleed, <laughs> literally bleed into the difference here. And that's what we've seen. We saw a number of things that you could connect the dots, the Obama administration, and it's creating daylight, this word daylight between, we saw President Obama, who won in 2008 after visiting Starot and saying famously, if my daughters ever face this kind of existential danger, I would do everything in my power to protect them. And then in Gaza in 2014, he wouldn't stop repeating the word restraint. He loved that word. He loves the words restraint when it comes to Jews. Right. And obviously Axelrod and all those other Jews in the in the White House believe that, too. Jews, Jews. by the way, Rahm Emanuel. Really? Your father's Israeli. Right. I mean, really. So so we saw a number of things that you could connect the dots. The way Israel was referred to again, it wasn't the first time Gaza and Israel lit up, but it was the first time that uh, that that the American presidency stood behind the idea that there was almost a moral equivalency to the loss of life, right? And when in fact, no, these are barbarians and these are liberal dem Democrats. These are liberals and those are barbarians. There's no, there's no moral or ethical equivalency here. I mean, I wrote a, a, an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal in 2014, which Everyone saw it. it was all over Europe. They ran it in the Europe section in which, and by the way, I never lived it down. It was the cause of damage at NYU that was never to be fixed again, never to be fixed again. And it ended some of my writing gigs also, in which I said as a law professor, I'm not sure that the Gazans are all innocent civilians. I said, under the fourth Geneva Convention, they don't really qualify <laughs> What they're referring to in civilians is people that are sitting in their homes, really, really worried, who get pulled out by an army and are used as hostages. I said, it doesn't really apply to people who democratically voted in a terrorist organization as their leaders. They could have voted in anybody, but they said, 
we want the ones that want to kill Jews. And by the way, we know if we vote for them and they attempt to attack Jews, one thing about the Israelis, they're going to retaliate. And so it's not going to be good for us, but we don't care because dead Jews are so exciting to us that we're, we're willing to take the risk. And so that's one problem with innocent civilians. The other thing is allowing them to come into your home and use your home as command centers, not doing anything to protect your children, but instead offering up your children as not human shields. I just wrote an essay about that. They're not shields. They're the end game. They're not a shield assumes that it's there for defensive purpose. They know what they are. They are completely martyred for this, for this cause. There's no, they're not able to shield anything. And so I, I listed all of those things. And of course, that's when Thane Rosenbaum, the baby killer came up. And I said, look, I, I said, children are innocent. Uh, and there are no, I said, these are the worst parents on the planet, right? There's the worst. I said, in the United States, if you leave a kid in a closed car in the summer without the windows in, they take the child away from you. In Gaza, you get to go on MSNBC and show your dead kid that you failed to protect, that you offered up. In Gaza, you're a hero and your child will have a park named after him or her. But in the United States, keep your windows up, your kid goes to child services. So I said, so I just said, let's just be more clear. The word innocent civilian doesn't really apply. Doesn't mean they're not civilians. I said in fourth generation warfare, Technically, everyone is civilian. No Hamas fighter wears a uniform. We, we, we're not meeting Israel in battle. This is not the old school Jordan, Syria, and, and Egypt. We're not, in this, we're not having a tank fight in a deserted, you know, Israel, if Israel, could, if they would be willing, I mean, I, I raised this years ago during the first Hamas war. I said, could set up a camp for children of Hamas take them over to Sirot, bring in clowns and, and make them happy and give them food and just hope that God, that their parents survive. You, there's all sorts of, Israel would have happily said, come across the border, we'll, have, we'll set things up. Also, if your wives send them across the border, for God's sakes, you want your wives dead? And the answer is yes, yes, we want our wives dead. We win when we die. This right. is, you know, there's an old, I said this on Newsmax the other day, I said, there's an old uh, Israeli joke about this, but it's not funny. They said, we can't allow the Arabs to out-crazy us. I don't know if you've heard that. It's one of my favorite lines. What does that mean? They're crazy. Not right. all of them, but those that are involved in this struggle are insane. They're, they, they're, there's a pathology there. And instead of talking about Israel as perpetrating genocide, someone on the progressive side should say, you need to get a lot of Xanax. You have to send stuff down to them because they're not, they're, they're mentally deranged. Something's not right about the way they think it's really twisted. And the fact that there's an equivocation or an equivalence is really stunning. And in my view, it emanates from the Obama administration that although he was criticized by progressives, for not being progressive enough, I think he laid the groundwork from what we're seeing today. And so this progressive movement of the squad, all of this are connected dots. What I would argue is the the, uh, tsunami that left the university and settled into the public sphere. 
Right. It's a long answer, but that's what, <laughs> that is how I would answer it, Bela. That's right. how we got here. We smugly believed that it was, con or I surely did, confined to the universities. Kids would grow out of it. The faculty members have no influence anywhere. They're complete lowlifes. So what, what, what do we have to worry about? And this is America. The police will be here. No, they're not. We're defunding the police. All of a sudden, white Jews are white privileged. Uh, Israel is a colonial settler enterprise. There are only white people from Brooklyn there. There are no dark-skinned people there. There's no Miss Ethiopia. Uh, I'm sorry, Miss Israel was Ethiopian. Really? Apartheid. Supreme Court justices are Arab. Yeah, that's apartheid. Sure. Jews and, and Israelis sit on public transportation together. Yeah, that's apartheid. Yeah, Jews and, 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 and Israelis go to restaurants and sit together. Yeah, apartheid, of course. Yes, AOC. That's exactly what an insult to South African uh, uh, racism to say this is apartheid. Really? Genocide. Well, let me just give you the numbers. In all instances, Congolese, Sudanese, Cambodian, Rwandan, Bosnian, Armenian, uh, and of course, the Holocaust. I, may, I might be missing some other genocide of the 20th century and 21st century. In every instance, ethnic cleansing and genocide means a significant subtraction of your population. The Palestinian population has more than doubled since the occupation. Doubled. Really? Ethnic cleansing? Really? You, you want to say that to an Armenian, to a Cambodian? You want to say that to their face? Right. That, yes, our population doubled, but we scream genocide and everyone says it's true. Right. So, again, this is it's a long answer, but this is how we got here. It's and I don't think it's anyone's fault, really. <laughs> like, I just think meaning that I think it's it's shocking. It was not expected. It was not expected. And I'll tell you why. In Europe, although France is the largest Jewish community in throughout Europe, they never had the, the, the cultural and political influence that Jewish Americans have had for the last, you know, 40 years here. It's never been the same, right, in terms of elected public officials, in terms of lobbying efforts on Capitol Hill. We know, you know, just in terms of, you know, just the numbers of people of influence yeah. that would be able to speak to anti-Semitism if it got to this point. And again, that didn't happen. Everyone is running away, including our public figures. Schumer, an absolute coward, useless. Schiff, Nadler goes to my shul. I can't even look at him. Um, uh, uh, you know, of course, Feinstein. This is not leadership. And they're not, again, let me go back to, they're not Jews. They're not Jews. Yes, of course, Schumer will throw out a Yiddish word, but he's not a Jew because no Jew in his position would have said and not said what he's done in the last whatever weeks. Right. So, Professor, your answer opened up like four or five questions for yeah, me. Sure. Bela, <laughs> I won't hog all the time. But, the, the, but there are a few things, though. Number one, in politics, years ago, a lot of it was theatrics. Each side gets up in front of the microphone and they yell and they scream because they're playing to, to their constituents. We no longer have that. We now have an agenda-driven political environment. The squad the four of them who supposedly rank like four in the 400s as far as accomplishments go, they're, they're not there to serve the constituents. They're there to drive an agenda. 
you mentioned the Jewish senators and Jewish politicians. How is it that not one of them has the guts to stand up to them? And I'll give you just one example because you know there are many. When Rashida Tlaib from Michigan said that her ancestors welcomed the Jews escaping Europe only to be displaced by them, how is it that not one Jew said, excuse me, your ancestors were Nazi collaborators. Your ancestors told the British, block the Jews or we'll blow your buildings up. And not one Jew had the courage to stand up to them. Oh, but here, here, Alan, let me just say, and your ancestors were in Hebron, slaughtering 69 Jews that you purportedly welcomed in 1923 or 1926. Before there ever was a Jewish homeland, your ancestors have always remained so bloodthirsty that you slaughtered Jews in Hebron. Yeah, welcoming. Yeah, thanks for that welcome. Right, and then four weeks ago, you had the J Street Conference. I paid my 36 bucks to get in. (laughs) Every speaker, without fail, bashed Israel, occupation, they all thanked J Street for their working with progressive values. And that's who J Street is. And they're the ones who told Barack Obama, we're going to give you cover. Abandon Israel at the UN, we'll give you cover. Peter Beinart, in his book, The Crisis of Zionism, which I had to read twice from my own book, bash, uh, you know, bashes Israel or American supporters for paying for uh, funding Holocaust museums while we didn't learn the lessons of the Holocaust. He's the one before Europe started putting special labels on products made over the 67 lines. That was his idea. The Obama administration didn't support it, but they didn't oppose it either. And we talk about truth, apartheid, and the examples you gave, see, that's our mistake. We're not battling truth. It's not a, they're not promoting truth. We're not battling it. This is a war of words to stir up and, and inflame emotions. By accusing Israel of genocide, ethnic cleansing, apartheid, you're going to come back and show them pictures? Look, Jews and Arabs sing on trains. Who cares? That's not what it is. This is intentional to delegitimize Israel and to, and to put a bullseye on every single Jew in America. It's working in Europe. It's going to happen here. And as you see here, the cops today are afraid. And if you're not afraid to attack a cop, you're sure the hell not going to be afraid to attack a Jew. So, so there, I have two thoughts to that quickly. And then, then Bela will jump back in, I guess. Uh, the first is that there are two ways to look at what you've talked about, Alan. One is to say that there's a long history of Palestinian to the extent to which that's a term of art that means something as opposed to Arabs that once lived in Palestine and could have ended up as Israeli Arabs, right? In, in, in any other different context, they would have just been Israelis. So, you know, again, I said this in a recent essay, I said, the West Bank has never not been occupied. People don't understand this. It was never, and I can take you to Babylonians, the, the Ottoman Turks, the Assyrians, the Romans, the Greeks, the British, the Jordanians, it's never, and then of course now purportedly the Israelis. Of all that long list, and I think if you go back to you know ancient Greece before Rome, you realize that this is all after the fall of King David, right? That it has been occupied this entire time. Only Israel has a legitimate legal claim of title. Of all the occupiers, the only one that could actually make a legal argument under, real, under any international or real estate law would be the Israelis. And guess what? The Palestinians are the one people that have never actually occupied the land that they claim to be their state. Right? They're the only ones. That's an irony. I'm not saying they didn't live there. Of course they lived there, but so did Jews. Right? 
but they've never actually, never was there a state in Palestine and never were they responsible for that state at no point. So yes, there's a long history of Palestinian uh, Arab violence against Jews that won't end in, as you said, collaborators with Hitler. But the other side is different. When we talk about the university, right, what that did, what that did is, look, they ran out of ideology, postmodernism, modern, and they ran out deconstructionism, they ran out communism, you know, and these guys, if they don't have an ideology, they don't have a life, right? That in the faculty lounge, it's all they live for. So they developed one, which was basically called anti-colonialism, which gives them an opportunity to attack any white person, right? The UK, Western Europe, and of course, Israel, white people from Brooklyn and Flatbush. That's all we know. We don't know them. They have no claim. They're stealing Arab land. They're a colonialist enterprise. So for garden variety, certainly of the intellectual left, uh, Jew haters in the United States, here's the twisted problem. They turned anti-Semitism into a human rights issue. There's, it's, it's almost fiendishly, freakishly genius. No one ever thought of this before. Why don't we just call anti-Semitism a human rights cause? We won't call it anti-Semitism. We'll call it something else. We'll call it anti-Zionism. We'll call it, we'll make distinctions between Jews and Zionists when we don't really think that's true, but we'll make these fake distinctions. We'll use words, loaded words that can only mean one thing, evil, apartheid, genocide, right? We'll use those words to describe it. We'll talk about the word stolen, right? Stolen is a very powerful word. We know this because Donald Trump, look what, by using the word stolen, mobilized the whole movement. Using the word stolen gets you a lot. And because most people are ignorant, haven't read a book and never traveled anywhere and can't find Israel on a map, why don't we just pretend that Israel was created in 1967? No one will check. How will they know? They'd have to know how to read. They have to want to look it up and they won't want to know the answer. So let's just tell them it started in 67 where Jews took over Arab land. So you have on one side, natural born killers of Jews, the Palestinians. And, you know, you really got to really dig deep to find those that don't like, that don't enjoy the thought, the romantic idea of dead Jews. They really like it. It's enjoyable. And then you have this other side, the intellectual left that said, you know, we really hate Jews and always have. Uh, we've always had sort of very clandestine ways of expressing it. But now we have a very open one. This is awesome. And that has been really what we're facing. And that, by the way, is what we're facing now. This is why that when uh, Ilhan Omar was at her what, fourth anti-Semitic comment, when there was calls to pass a, a, a congressional resolution to condemn her like they did with Steve King from Iowa, for, who was a Republican, for racist language, obviously Congress again, right? Moral equivocation, cowardly. Well, we, a white guy in Iowa can be condemned, but a woman of color wearing Islamic uh, attire? No, you couldn't condemn her. So we'll just pass a general anti-discrimination resolution that includes anti-Semitism, but guess what? It also includes Islamophobia. Correct. And so again, human rights issue, frame it that in the end, it doesn't matter. What you do to Jews doesn't matter because in the end, they deserve it. Right. Whatever it is, they deserve it.
And, and that's really, truly what, Baylor, what we're facing now and what you're seeing now in the cowardness, what you're seeing is the runaway, like now beating Jews in the street is, is sort of a human rights issue. Surely you can understand that that's an appropriate thing to do. Surely. I mean, after all, look what they've done. Right. Yeah. So those are the t- things. And, and, and Alan also, I would say, I agree with you. I'm not that sanguine that this gets fixed. I don't know how. I wish I was smart enough to know how. Sorry, Bela, I think you got interrupted. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, Thane, I'm a journalist too, but totally and certainly not in your high league. One of the things that we know is that the written word is life itself. In your article, The Big Lie, published in White Rose magazine, you talk about lies and how they are disguised and how words are misapplied. We all know that lying is a form of communication that involves the deceiver and the deceived. And the manifestation of lies can be complete deception, half-truth, exaggerations, and important omissions. You actually give a good psychological analysis of how lies can affect the viewpoints of people globally. Please share with us how the lies and their methods with regard to Hamas gaslighted people glo- globally. Well, I, you know, I know this is, <laughs> I'm not really a journalist. I'm, you know, really an essayist. And I'm, all, I'm always off to the next one. So I, if you could just tell me one thing that I said there, I might actually remember what I listed as, do you remember? Because to me, that's probably three or four essays ago. Oh, you, you mentioned you mentioned in, in your in your article how um, uh, how Hamas is is the ones that are are, are being victimized. Oh, and right. Somehow well, sure. it was it's accepted. It's accepted globally. But how do they make that happen? How you, you spoke about that? You know, you spoke a little bit about that. their gaslighting methods. So if you can yeah. elaborate, you know, it would be. Well, would be part, part of them that. are the ones that we've just discussed. Apartheid genocide, ethnic cleansing, uh, you know, colonial settler enterprise. Those, to me, are the big ticket items. Most people, everything that I just said before, have, have never heard anything like that. By the way, most Jews, most people who will listen to this, some of them will write to you, I hope, and say, I didn't know the Palestinian population had doubled since the occupation. How is that a genocide? Right. I didn't know that there was never actually a country, Palestine. And in fact, the one country that it's never actually been a country before, it's always been occupied. And when Jordan occupied it for 19 years, no one said a word about occupation. And when Egypt occupied Gaza for 19, 17 or 19 years, no one said anything about occupation. Why is it only an occupation when Israel had it, when Jews have it? Right. When they say we're this is really about human rights and and self-determination, you have to ask the question, why is only one nation on the planet delegitimized as a state? None of the others, not Syria, not Iran, none of the others, no mass murders, you know, 500,000 Syrians were killed in the civil war. No one says to Syria, you're a delegitimized state. If you only can identify one state that doesn't deserve the right to exist, and it happens to be a Jewish one, you've just said you're an anti-Semite, right? And you should be able to say this to people in dinners, and you should just say what I just said. If that's the only state that you're identifying, then how can you claim not to be an anti-Semite? Because there are actual occupiers, again, 
Israel has a claim of title, right? I mean, look, in my view, I, look, I, I'm a liberal Democrat, <laughs> just to be on record, right? I'm, you know, I voted for Biden, right? I voted for Obama. So I, I am dangerous to them. You know why? I'm my own man. Nobody owns me. I'm my own man. I think and say what I want. That's why I went to uh, Turo. I'm grateful to be there. I wanted the opportunity to say and write what I wanted to say. So I'm a, I'm a dangerous is one of the reasons why Newsmax brought me in as a contributor. I'm dangerous. Right. I'm a Jewish intellectual on the left who's calling out the truth. Oh, my God. That's scary. On the left. Dershowitz. Yeah. You yeah. and Alan Dershowitz. I, in fact, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I was no. I was the literary editor for Tikkun magazine. People don't even remember this. Yeah. I mean, Thane Rosenbaum was the yeah, the, the they're to the left of the nation. <laughs> right. And so right. what I what I'm saying is that it's the word games and the manipulation, the gas yeah. what you're describing as the gaslighting is things that are not widely known and are not used to rebut this other things. Like to me, that's what Schumer and Nadler should be doing. He's, the first thing they should have done is called the joint press conference with all the Jewish members of Congress. That's what I would have done. If I was the chief of staff of any of them, I would say, you know, uh, Chuck, Senator Schumer, why don't you grow one? Really? Why don't you try being heroic? I know you've never tried before. Instead of being what you are, try to be something else. Call a press conference and has surround yourself. You're the majority leader. Should be you the one that speaks and said, we are here in particular to rebut and respond to a, to a series of libel libels that are being too widely disseminated in a very dangerous way. And we believe it'll lead to violence in the street. By the way, it did. Right. Right. It did. But I would have told them to do it weeks ago. Maybe we could have avoided this. Right. In fact, these these are not true. And we as Jewish lawmakers who are American citizens are standing up for the truth. And we would do the same for any other people that would be so libeled. And by the way, our people have a history of being libeled. And so we're especially we're especially sensitive to that as American Jews. We believe that what happened with the Bayless trial in Russia that happened in the Dreyfus affair in Paris we came here, my parents came here, my grandparents, whatever they are, parents, grandparents, my, par- my parents were Holocaust survivors. I am first generation. I am proud of being a Jewish, a first generation American Jew. But I would think that the lawmakers had an opportunity to give a short history lesson of Jews around the world and said, America was a shining example of something that would never happen. In would fact, not happen. Yes. In fact, you appropriately refer to Europe as the crime scene of the Holocaust. And as a child of Holocaust survivors, I grew up hearing the stories about the death chance and riots against Jews preceding the destruction and murder of innocent men, women, and children in the final solution. And 76 years later, we are getting a bitter taste of what was experienced in Europe. The world stood still then, and the world is sitting still now. The irony is that you write about what you write about is so true how the progressives who champion for social justice to treat Islamists as good people, members in good intersectional standing, yet their hatred for homosexuals, lesbians, education is okay. Can you make sense of that? Is that the new normal? Well, you know, that's the thing. I've written about that, Abela, for a, a number since Black Lives Matter started. You know, I had the audacity on the left... <laughs> to point out some real problems 
you know, for instance, the Women's March, many people don't know this. The Women's March was started by two Jewish women who then joined up with Linda Sarsour and Akeep, uh, Malika Mallory, Akeep Tamika. Mallory, I forgot her, an African-American, right. from Tamika, Tamika Mallory. Mallory. So the four of them were the, the pioneers of the Women's March. After the march succeeded, right, this was after Donald Trump's inauguration, they had their first meeting about what's next. And I don't, I'm sure you both know, but I'm sure some members of your audience don't know. What happened next was Tamika Mallory and Linda Sarsour told the two Jewish found, co-founders, by the way, the two Jewish women started it first. So just, it's not, they're just four co-founders. There were two Jewish women who joined up. They were told, keep your mouth shut and listen to us. That's what life is like from now on. Why? You're white and you're Jewish. Your ancestors were involved in the slave trade and your job is to show your respect of your white privilege and keep your mouth shut and listen to the Arab and the African-American women here who have much more interesting things to say. The two Jewish women looked at each other in utter shock and left. They're done. Of course, they were not welcomed. They were only welcomed to help get it started. And they were essentially kicked out because they told, were told to keep your mouth shut and listen to us. And so, yes, we have a problem. The progressive left have romanticized, you know, from the Black Lives Matter movement to critical race theory, which we see on campus, the idea of the hatred of white privilege and the ascension, the elevation of the voices of people of color and the accusation, the false accusations, you know, at Oberlin, there's a professor, a female professor, that said the following. We should not be offering courses on the Holocaust because Holocaust, the Holocaust is white-on-white -white crime. Let me repeat that to you and your audience. We, don't, we shouldn't be teaching courses on the Holocaust because it's white-on-white -white crime, and white-on-white -white crime doesn't matter. And so this is, this is what we're facing. We're, and because Jews have a long history of progressivism, and attachment to liberal causes, certainly on the, on the Dem in a Democratic Party, since all these Tukun Olam Reform synagogues have social activism committees and they send the, say the words Tukun Olam without having a clue what it actually means, it doesn't mean that you cannot also show a repair of your own people. <laughs> it doesn't also somehow mean that you reject the, the, the protections of your own people. It does not mean. It does not mean that you attack your own people in order to demonstrate morally how superior you are. Because that's the other thing, this, this, this attachment that Jews have to demonize Israel as an, op as an opportunity to show what a good person they are. What a good person they are. African Americans won't let you say the words black and black crime, but Jews are perfectly fine talking about apartheid states. What? How twisted is that? How is that evidence of what a high SAT gets you? Yeah. So look, all I could say is, yes, you, uh, the point that you read out of that essay, Bela, is something I feel very strongly about, is the co-opting of Jews into this broader struggle, right? If, look, it's one thing, just let's be clear. There's a reason, you know, <laughs> there's a reason why I was alone for all these years on campuses, because Jewish faculty members were afraid to touch me because I'm radioactive. Right. 
They liked life to be better in the faculty lounge. Some of them just shut their mouths and never said anything. They didn't disagree with me. They just wanted life to be better. Okay. And so they kept their mouths. We're about Others, to get cut off. We're gonna, I apologize. Yeah, we're, I know that oh, Alan sorry. had a tremendous Promise amount of me. questions that we do, and we've back. gone over our time. Of course I'll come back. I'm sorry that went no. so no, quick. No, 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 please. This has been so incredible. Okay. Uh, Thane, it's been an absolute honor and, and pleasure and privilege having you join us today as our guest. Thank I you to our listening audience for tuning in. And to Vinews.com for our show being their official podcast. I would love Thank to you. continue this going on. And I know Alan has a tremendous amount of questions. And, yeah. you know, I do we'll, too. We'll come back. So please, please, Good. please, please join us again. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your hosts, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Rap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Rap.